Welcome to Tuke Talk, a video podcast by the band Tuke, and brought to you by Blackfrog Media. We chat with the best in the music industry from yesterday and today with a focus on the good old days of Canadian rock. This episode originally streamed live on Tuesday, August 25th, 2020 on Facebook Live. Now, here are your hosts, Todd, Brent, Shane, Corey, and Darren. Hey, and we're live. Hey, guys. Wow. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Duke Talk. Wow. Before we went on, we were uh, just exchanging drummer jokes, so that yeah. was uh, entertaining. <laughs> always picking on the drummer. Yeah. Always picking on the drummer. Yeah. Leave, your, leave your favorite drummer joke in the comments. We'll be sure to uh, acknowledge it. <laughs> What is it? The difference between a, a pizza and a, and a drummer is a pizza could feed a family of four. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and Shane walks out. Why do, drummers, why do drummers put their sticks on the dash of their car? Hey, I play guitar, man. So they can, <laughs> so they can park in the handicap zone. <laughs> oh, look out. Look out. <laughs> so, uh, so a couple of changes this week, as I'm sure everybody that's tuning in and has tuned in over the past couple of weeks have noticed. Um, we're trying to change up the format here. Um, you know, we are aware of the, uh, you know, some of the audio quality issues that we've had in the past. And, of course, you know, we, uh, we can only do so much with what we have. And, of course... We are always trying to make it better for you guys. So feel free to leave it another thousand times in the comments so we can uh, go over it again. <laughs> totally. If we um, didn't do this, it would be much better. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> for everybody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and Brent Fitz isn't with us. And Brent Fitz, is yeah. Where's Brent? Maybe that's why the quality is so good. Maybe it's, I'm just saying. I'm there you go. <laughs> yeah, see, music junkie official here. Sound is amazing. You know, he was. Okay, he was, good, good. You know, he's he's uh, the first one to let us know when anything's going wrong. So he or she, I'm not sure, but I, I guess. Um, thank you, Music Junkie Official, for tuning in. And we uh, we strive to do our best each week. But if you do want to help support the show, be sure, click the link below, send some stars, contribute the way the stars works. It's about a penny a piece. You might mm -hmm. get some just for tuning in every week. Facebook will throw you them. Feel free to throw them back to us, and we can always uh, do our best to improve the show. Brent Fitz is not with us this week because, um, unfortunately, Brent is in Winnipeg and uh, is still, uh, you know, dealing with some family issues. So we support yep. him in his time off and we are thrilled to welcome a guest this week, um, which yeah. probably needs no introduction, but before we get to that, anything uh, interesting happened to you guys this week? What's new and exciting? Uh, I just saw Corey Cherko yesterday. Can you believe that? I was yeah. at Corey Cherko's studio yesterday. What do you, what do you, what do you, this is for those drummer jokes. <laughs> 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 what the for both Brent and myself? Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> well, you can always bust out bass player jokes. Fitz falls into the bass player joke scenario, and so do I. So there's that. Yeah, yeah. I guess because you guys all do, you know, different things. I mean, you can always dodge the joke by picking up another instrument. So, well, exactly. You know, you, you know, go round and round here. You know the difference between a uh, a trampoline and an accordion. You take your shoes off to jump on the trampoline. <laughs> Ouch! Weird Al somewhere is crying. He's coming after accordion players. Look out! Uh, <laughs> just kidding. I just missed kidding. the accordion. Did you guys have friends that played the accordion? My Throw dad off? played accordion. That's right. Well, like, you so is the accordion basically like it's like the piano keys? I've never actually sat down and thought, you know, like it's piano keys, but it's this is causing the actual um, the air to noise to come out. Make so, the yeah. sound, yeah. I never got so the chord part though. How does the chord part work? Oh yeah, there's like a thing. Yeah. Two octaves? Is it two octaves here? I don't know. 
like here, right? <laughs> and we're going to have yeah. to get Corey's dad on the show. There's, yeah, um, actually, we should get my dad on the show. We, we button, probably should get Roman on the for the for the accompaniment. <laughs> He's a big time producer in Las Vegas, I hear. All right, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Are you playing the, the 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 accordion or like assaulting yeah, someone? No, I'm not quite sure what's going on yet. Um, accordion play. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, beautiful. Um, do you want me to? Uh, yeah. Other than that, we've been working on new tube music. Corey just sent over a new mix of another song. It sounds great. It sounds awesome. It's really turning out great. I'm excited. Can't uh, wait to share it with everybody. Me too. It's 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 such a wacky time because we have like new material and still not really sure what's going on in the world with the you know um, the current situation of of COVID and all that and what's meant to happen. I think there are shows happening in Canada. Am I, am I right? Darren, yeah, there are live shows. There are club shows, believe it or not. Um, I have yet to partake, but my understanding is I imagine they have all of the, uh, you know, safety measures in place, but yeah, they are happening. And uh, Germany is doing tests right now. I heard this. Did you see that article? They had about 1500 people in a venue. Mm -hmm. uh, Oh, three, three different days. And it was uh, the same band every Every time it was like to test different scenarios of standing with social distancing and masks, no social distancing and masks, and then no masks, no social distancing at all, like old school. And the data isn't all like analyzed yet, but they're going to see how each one, the best way to bring back the concert industry, essentially. Hmm. I saw also they had the, uh, the setup where people were kind of put in their own little penalty box sort of thing. And they were kind of staggered six feet uh, across a field in, in, in some concert scenarios as well. So yeah, that's kind of so like weird. A, that's kind of up there with the, um, the drive-in type idea, sitting right. on the hood of your car watching BTO or somebody playing, you know, just seems so, weird to me. The nice thing is, uh, here we go. Gloria is asking, uh, can you give us a hint as to what songs you're working on? And I'm assuming you guys were referencing some new original material, correct? Yes. Yeah. No, yes. Yeah. you won't know it because it's never been played before, but uh, we haven't entertained the idea of covering anything again. We probably should entertain it. We've actually entertained the idea of busting out acoustic guitars and doing a going that route for a while. It would be kind of fun. Anne yeah. Murray, Gordon, Gordon Lightfoot. Yep. Who, who else? Luba. 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 Wow. Yeah, that'd be great. Neil Young, of course. There's Neil a lot Young. of that kind of school. We should Terry do that Jack. kind of like Terry, Terry Jack. Jack. We had joy. We had fun. We had season in the sun. We and, could possibly, have like a, and possibly some Helix. And possibly some, well, yeah. Let me do anything Thing you want. Which is actually foot and cold Make water. Me. Yeah, yeah. Foot and cold water. Yeah, yeah. Make but they do it. They do a great version of that. That's yeah. true. Actually, that works. There you go. We we got. Totally. It's a twofer. It's a twofer. We could do um, twofer. We could do some old Chilliwack that way. Yeah, which would be fun. It's like a we'll make a makeout record or like a you know a Sunday yeah. morning kind of record. Like you got a party rock record, and totally. then like the next morning you can put on your Sunday morning kind of you know chilling with your lady. That's right. You know, whoever you want to chill with, I don't know. A Canadian, a Canadian winter cuddle album. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a Canadian cuddle winter album. <laughs> Wow. I've never heard so, that term. Yeah, well, you know, it gets cold up here. So mm-hmm. um, I'm sure you guys know. Um, yes. Yeah. And great segue. We also want to um, all, I mean, we're, we're always growing. We're always getting better. We are broadcasting simulcast to mm. uh, Facebook and our YouTube channel. So now you can watch on whatever platform you prefer. And uh, 
feel free to leave your comments. We're getting them all. So uh, we'll try to get to as many as we can because, um, you know, there are a lot. And of course, we, uh, we want to hear from our guests. And uh, so we always want to hear from you guys. So without further ado, who wants to do the introduction for this week? I'll do it. God. I first saw Helix. I was trying to think of this because uh, it was, I went to see a Headpins concert. There you go. Nice. And it was, uh, this would be like, I don't even know, 80 something. And the singer came like Helix was opening and it was like, Brian came bounding over top of the amplifiers. Like a, it was like a, like a Russian gymnast. It was insane. I was like, what is this? They were doing the no rest from the wicked heavy metal love, all that kind of stuff. And it was like, wow, I was sold. And they went on to be massive, especially in our neck of the woods, but uh, they had a lot of great stuff. But anyway, let's introduce our very special guest. One of the greatest frontmen in the history of rock and roll, as far as I'm concerned, from Helix, Brian Vollmer. Welcome to the show. Well, that's a pretty big compliment coming from someone like you. Oh, well, it's true, dude. Like, I, I, I remember sitting in the, we were in this hockey arena in Saskatoon. I don't know if you remember the hockey hockey arena in Saskatoon. It's not there anymore. It's I think it's a movie theater, if I'm not mistaken, now oh, right. in that spot. But I remember going to see the headpins and just like, who are these guys? Just You just came bounding out, and it was like, you made a lot of new friends that night, that's for sure. And I've seen you a bunch of times since then, obviously, but uh, yeah, those, those albums are fantastic. And, Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, Brian, we were just touching on uh, on concerts and, and drive-in concerts. And uh, actually, Donna here was asking the same thing that I was just going to ask you. I saw somewhere that there was a concert scheduled this upcoming weekend in Saskatoon that you guys were doing a show like that. Apparently, it's been canceled. And if so, what was the what was the reason for that? I bet you I can answer it for you. <laughs> well, you, you, you were talking before, you know, about going to drive-ins and that and sitting in the box. And that's, to me, that it seems unnatural. And that's probably why it didn't sell well. Um, because we always do good in those markets, so I don't know. But uh, I think eventually you're going to see concerts go back to the way they were because human beings were meant to rub shoulders and shake hands and give hugs and flobber mm-hmm. all over each other and have stuff. <laughs> I know. It's a weird time, isn't it? I, I, it's, it's funny to imagine, like, because we're always very sort of, you know, approachable and enjoy interacting with everybody. So it seems weird to me to do a show that would be, I don't know, just kind of like, you know, don't, don't talk to me. Don't touch me. Don't, you know, we have to stand, but we'll see, we'll see how this all plays out. Hopefully. Yeah. I was actually going to take my camera and take pictures of it because I was saying to people, you might never ever see this ever again. Right. And then it didn't happen. So I know Uh, I've heard two or three going down when they tried to do that. And, um, but so you know, what, what was the format there? Was it a drive-in or was it just secluded areas? Or I think that... it was a drive-in in a great big building. Somebody, you know, somebody researched it and showed it to me. I think it was Linda, my wife, or random huh. merchandiser. But uh, um, we never got to that point. So, but it was us in prison. Oh wow! Oh wow! Yeah. But like yeah, last gotcha. time in, in Saskatoon, we played behind the big hotel downtown. What's it called? The Besboro. The, the Besboro Hotel. Beautiful, yeah. beautiful building. Yeah. And, it and is. really, huge, huge audience. That was in the pouring rain. So, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, you think of COVID, and it's almost like there's this this line. You know, I I look at some of my films. It was like that happened pre-COVID. Like there was, yeah, a, I know, like there was a curtain there or something. Yeah, I know. And uh, we had to live through the best years ever of rock and roll. You never know. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 
I'm pretty optimistic. I think everything's going to find figure itself out, and I'm, I'm betting when it does come back, it's going to be very exciting for for us as musicians and for the audience as well. So I can't wait. Well, you know, the me two camps on this is that people want to go out no matter what. Like, you know, I don't mean foolishly, but want to go out, and then there's other ones that really want to, uh, um, you know, quarantine themselves. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah. Hopefully, I think that you take a, a chance and getting killed every time you go out your front door and you could run over by a car, like whatever. Of course, so, yeah, yeah. In this case, I just try to, you know, socially distance and... That's all you can do. That's all you can do. So going back, this is always, you know, I'm always very curious about, did you grow up around the London, Ontario area? Where you're currently in I London, Ontario? Little Ontario on a farm. Oh, okay. I was, wow. I was a farm kid. I first got into music. And my first album was uh, American Woman by the Guess Who. Hmm. I bought it on Hayes Hardware, I remember, for two ninety nine. I, <laughs> I think I sucked my brothers and sisters and each chipping in like 50 cents or something. But uh, uh, then I went and I was a big Stuff and Wolf fan. And I was very lucky yeah. uh, to have met John Kay several times over the last uh, 10 or 15 years. Cool. I was a big fan of, uh, of, of Stuff and Wolf. And then I branched in other bands like Bowie and Alice Cooper. And I used to hitchhike and have Alice Cooper albums, eh? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So did you? Uh, so did you go to school in town somewhere? Or how does that work? All the farm kids. I I lived in a small town in Saskatchewan, and all the farm kids would bus in and go to school with us, and then they'd go back to the world. Is that how that works? Well, I started going to school in the separate school, which is I don't know if you know this, but in Ontario, uh, there's separate schools which are Catholic schools, and then there's the public schools, which are right. So I went to a Catholic school, and I had to go to church every morning, and I was an altar boy. In fact, when I was out. Uh, for uh, Countdown to Liquor Day, the uh, Trailer Park Boys movie. I, started, uh, <laughs> I was talking to John Dunsworth, and uh, we got around, and, and he said he was an altar boy too, right? And I said, did you have to learn all that damn Latin? And he goes, <laughs> oh, my oh, God. Said, did you learn the Shushipit, which was the longest Latin? But he stood there, and it, I filmed him, and he did the Shushipit for me in film, and now, as you know, he passed away. Oh, so, yeah. Um, yeah, I went to that... Uh, uh, I started walking to school when I was a kid. I used to have, have to walk three three miles to school and three miles back at night. Damn. And then high school, they bus and said it was 10 miles into town. Wow. And, um, you know, I went to Listowel High School. I was on the football team. And, and Did you, like, did you sing in the choir or anything like that? Is that where you found the yeah, voice? Yeah, I got in the choir. And our, we had a really good choir. We had a guy uh, that conducted our choir named uh, Jerry Fagan. And, okay. uh, and he was... Ended up going to London, and they had the Fanshawe Singers there. But uh, when I was in grade 13, which was the last year of uh, high school and kind of like the first year of university, mm -hmm. uh, he, he talked me into trying out for this thing called the Ontario Youth Choir, which was uh, uh, 500 of the best choir kids across Ontario would audition. And then they'd pick about 50, and then they'd go around to do classical music and other stuff around Ontario. Well, I got picked. And um, one of the things we did in that choir was we opened up Hamilton Place in Hamilton at the big arts center. Sure. And we performed uh, um, uh, a piece of music called A Mass in Our Time, written by Galt McDermott, who wrote, wrote Hair. And he, he was there. He never really talked to us. He'd say stuff to his hippie conductor, and then his hippie conductor would come over and yell and swear at us and freak out. <laughs> and he didn't really talk to us, but he was there. And uh, we had Aretha Franklin's rhythm section, uh, Sloney wow. Bay, 
Al Nicholson and Nell Carter from Jesus Christ Superstar and here, and uh, we opened wow. up Hamlet Place. So I was coming out of uh, um, high school just before I got into Helix, and that was so, Snyder's Meats and Kitchen. So you weren't in a rock band prior to, to, to Helix or anything like that, or high school? I was in a high school band called Homegrown. And the funny thing is, we wouldn't have known a joint if it would have jumped up and bit us in the ass. <laughs> and um, anyway, we, we got I got in this uh, little band in Kitchener called the Helix Field Band. Then our manager made us shorten the name to Helix. One of the first things we did, we were the band for Del Shannon. Oh, wow. And, uh, what, what, what they used to do is the Graham Booking Agency would uh, get some young green band to work for, like, you know, deck money. Yeah. And they'd bring in the... the uh, uh, the well-known artists like Jerry Lee Lewis or Gene Turner, uh, Freddie, Ca uh, uh, Freddie Cannon. And yeah. we got picked to be Del Shannon's band. We didn't even know who Del Shannon was, believe it or not. Wow. We went down to the record store and we got these records and here's this guy with the Beatles and Rolling Stones. And, <laughs> and so, uh, we practiced and practiced and practiced to learn all these songs in the, uh, agency would come out and they check on us every couple of months to make sure we were learning the songs right. Cause we already played. And, uh, right. they, then came the magic moment where I had to go pick up Del Shannon at Pearson Airport. So they sent me up to P Pearson Airport. Well, when I joined the band, I sold my new Honda Civic, which I had at the time. And instead, I bought a $25 Ford Galaxy with Bondo Red Fenders. <laughs> on, right? I go, I go up to Pearson and pick up the Del Shannon and the $25 Ford Galaxy. Get snow tires around the middle of summer and going down the floor. It's like this 80 miles an hour. And Del Shannon is just like gripping on the door. And look at that. He said, if you slow down, I'll buy you a steak dinner. So I slowed down. He went for, went for how, how old was he at the time? Yeah, I was probably around 19. How old was he or me? He, Del. Uh, he was probably just in his early 40s at that time. Something like that. Wow. And First of all, uh, that, that steak dinner probably cost more than the car. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it, it was something else playing with him. We played him for two weeks. We played a week at the Coronet and Kitchener. We played a week uh, at the Jockey Club in Hamilton, the old mafia joint up there in the Steel City. Amazing. And um, Del Shan was a heavy duty drinker. And um, anyway, we, we get to the Coronet and we go up to the Crown Room, which is they used to have three levels there at that hotel. And, and the Crown Room is all the, where the National Recording Acts played. And, and there's the band that going over some of the stuff. And Del Shannon walks in, he starts changing the keys and throwing all this, you know, crowd participation stuff in. Everybody's getting frightened, freaked out because we took us like forever to learn what we learned. Right. So we, we go up to the rooms after the practice. I mean, there's about maybe three, four hours before we're supposed to go on. Well, we had um, this guitar player in the band named Brent Derner. And Brent, by the way, he still does our videos. But Brent Durr was in the band, and he was a little little criminal, Brent. And uh, <laughs> my manager had gone to quit smoking cigarettes. So instead of smoking cigarettes, he used to smoke dope from morning to night. And he, <laughs> he used to carry around a, a vial of hash oil and uh, um, uh, two butter knives and a butane torch, right? Del <laughs> so, wow. Shannon walks in the room. And here's Brent, he's doing knife tokes, right, with his oil. <laughs> and Del Shannon goes, what are you doing? And Brent turns around and goes, here, we're doing knife tokes, try it. Del Shannon, what the hell are you trying to do? Are you trying to burn me or what? And then Brent goes, no, 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 I said, this is the way you smoke it. So he's <laughs> Del Shannon how to smoke the hash oil. 
So Del Shangle has about 10 tokes. Oh, no. And I'm, <laughs> you know, you're already a heavy drinker. While I'm watching this, I'm going, I don't know. <laughs> you might have told Del Shannon what to do. So you go on, and, I, and, and the coronet, you said this really cheesy stage about, I'd say about two feet high, a red carpet, and at the back it had like the, the gold and silver tinsel, right? And uh, the band, you said, for Del Shannon, we'd be playing this thing like da 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 da, little Vegas type of you know. Sure, yeah, yeah. Da, 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 da. Del Shannon came out, and the place was packed. There were like seven hundred people jammed in this room, and uh, standing room only. <clears throat> he comes out and he's waving to the crowd like this, right? And the band's playing, and he's supposed to go over and he starts. He plugs in. He had a Fender Twin Reverb sitting out front. He plugs in. He comes. He's tuning away to the band. He gets in tune. He stops the band, and uh, he was supposed to to start the show like once i had a pretty girl her name it doesn't matter she went away with another guy and now she's getting fatter <laughs> <laughs> anyway he walks out he's waving like this well he did a, like a face plant walk right off the front of the stage oh, wow. he the table, and he rolled off the goddamn table and the doctors grabbed him and they they heaved him back up and, he, and he, he'd been hurt like he fell right heavy on oh, oh no and he started singing he lost his voice and oh geez but I tell you, he, he was a talented guy, Del Shannon, and I remember him telling me stories about the Rolling Stones and, and the Beatles, Tom Petty. You know, mm -hmm. he's in, he's in uh, Running Down a Dream. He right? is, yes. He oh, wow. singing a little Runaway. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Del Shannon was a huge star. and uh, He I was, yeah. He felt that he'd been ripped off by his uh, management company. Uh, excuse me, his management company. Yeah. And... Um, but yeah, fantastic guitar player too. He used to play stuff in his room that he, he would never play on stage. So he never really knew the extent of uh, his talent. His real, real name was Charles Westover, I believe, and he was from uh, Wisconsin. Interesting. Wow. So were you playing, what, what were you playing? Guitar? I, what, I know you as a lead singer, so I... Uh, when we'd come up, we'd do a set, and then they'd come up and do a set. And I remember okay. in, in, uh, um, in Hamilton, you know, we got up, we did our set, everybody's booing us, right? And Del Shannon came up and he stopped us and he started giving a lecture to the audience. He goes, look, it, this is my band. And he says, you can all screw off. Uh, if you don't want to listen to them with respect, he says, I'm leaving. Wow. You know, shut up. That's a cool That's dude. That's amazing. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so then that... Uh, what uh, these stories are probably the best stories I've heard in a long time. By the way, these could you could just go all night. Go ahead. I could go all night. <laughs> I know you can. I know you can. Well, you know that's part of being in the in the business. I think for for I guess it's 47, 48 years now. I know. And right? That's amazing. On the road, we met everybody from uh, you know Jerry Doucette, um, uh, um, Matt Manglewood, uh, then. Uh, um, down in the states, Mitch Ryder and Detroit Wheels. That was a real thrill for me. Uh, totally, yeah. Ryder. Uh, a couple of years ago, we played, we played with Eric Burden. Oh wow, that's crazy. Um, you know, and uh, people have been around for so long. They started talking to you. Like I was talking to John Kay when I met him, and uh, John Kay was a big influence on, on my career and my life. And uh, he started talking about guys like Hoyt Axton and oh Lloyd wow, Paul, and I'm like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, at what point? How old are you when when uh, you actually put together? What was the official name? For, the original name for Helix? The original name was the Helix Field Band. We picked it wow. out of textbook because some of the guys were still going to school. Yeah. So they picked it one day. We needed a name. We had a gig coming up. We needed a name, so that's what they picked. 
That's wow. amazing. So how many of those guys remain to the Helix that we came to know and love? Is it just, are you the only sole member of that version? Well, I, I went and added up all the people who have been in the band over the years. I think there's something like 42. Oh. <laughs> I was actually just looking at the, the bio page on, on your website, and it was a scroll, scroll. You've got to remember this, right? <laughs> when, when we first started, you know, like we went through quite a few guys right off the bat because – the, the way they used to uh, break in bands back in the day, they they throw you out in the Northern Ontario circuit. It was like a birth of fire. Yeah, like, of course. Yeah. You not only had to sing and play your instrument, you had to know how to fight your way out of the damn bar. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we get requests thrown to, like in, in Timmins. We played this place in Timmins called the Travel Hall. So I remember I, I ducked an ashtray one day and whizzed by my head. Sure. And I, I noticed when I looked down, there was a note taped to it. And it's and I got a request, get the fuck off the stage or, or you're dead <laughs> meat. That's a request. You know, you had to survive those northern bars. A lot of guys just uh, Oh, I know. You just didn't have the guts to do it. No, I know. Yes. Um, for me, I was a farm kid and I didn't really go anywhere. My parents were poor. And my favorite book was Huckleberry Finn. I always I had this friggin' raft out the creek that just like sank like a rock. But <laughs> I had these visions of being like Huckleberry Finn and floating away down the river and for adventure. And uh, <laughs> when I first started touring Northern Trail, for instance, I remember being in North Bay or someplace like that. And I was looking down Gasoline Alley late at night where the, the lights kind of, you know, went off in the distance. I went, wonder what's down that road. And, and I still got that. Uh, you know, when when I go out and I'm touring, I get over to Europe and places like that. Even places in Canada. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. It's funny that you say that. There really is a sort of Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn kind of thing about maybe not building a raft, but getting on a on a in a van with a bunch of characters and traveling around. It's a similar idea, I guess. Well, you know, I think you're born to the life. You are the life. The life calls you, and I. Th um, I remember I read a book in uh, high school. I forget what it was, but it was a guy that he, he used to starve himself in the circus way back in the sixteen or seventeen hundreds, and that was a big deal. You go see the starving man, right? And uh, anyway, that the story goes on. Eventually, the guy it, it doesn't eat for so long. He, he ends up dying in the through starvation the, in his cage, and and somebody sees him right towards the end and says, you know, you must have had incredible willpower not to eat. And he says, no, I just didn't like food. Wow. What <laughs> <laughs> the moral of the story is, you know, I think that when you're a, a, what I call a lifer in the music business, you don't make the choice to join the music business. You're just, it's just, you're you just do. Yeah, it really is. It really yeah, is like being, yeah. yeah, it's like being circus folk, essentially. I mean, you know, you kind of have that in your blood, you know, the, you like to look yeah, at the, the lines on the highway and all that kind of stuff. It's cool, yeah. I now, during COVID, everybody can come and see the starving man. You just have to, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> starving band. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, the stupid things you think of, though. I remember, like, when I was down in, like, grade two or something, and we used to have, back then in the Catholic school, they used to teach would print off everybody a picture of, like, a violet, and they would paint the violet or paint the bird or whatever. And this one kid, uh, Dennis Stemmer, he painted, went shaded in the flower and put the little accent marks. So the teacher really praised him. So everybody in the class did it like that, except me. It was like me. I was like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I never think of myself, why can't I be like the other kids? But 
you know, when when you do this, you are kind of swimming upstream a lot of times. You know, us know that all you got. Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and and you realize after a while that you are a little bit different, maybe a little bit crazy. Yeah, that that difference good though. How long is it? How long is is Helix together before you start to become? Like the helix that we know and love. Like when does that start to kind of present itself? We formed in '74, and then uh, we got our deal capital in 1983. That's when wow. we formed Capital EMI. Wow. We were never signed to the Canadian label. We were always signed to Capital EMI out of uh, uh, Los Angeles, and uh, we go down. How did that happen? How did, yeah. uh, where where did the A and R guys come? How did this all come together? When uh, Los Angeles? Did you uh, go to Los Angeles, or how did this work? Well, we showcased for almost every label in Canada. Back then, there were a lot of labels, but they had a guy, uh, a capital EMI by the name of David Munz, who came from the uh, British side of the label. Okay. And David Munz was very tuned into what was happening metal-wise over in, in uh, England at that time with Iron Maiden, Jesus Priest, mm -hmm. uh, bands like that. And so we, we had uh, got a lot of attention on the White Lace and Black Leather album. Yeah. Uh, in, in, I believe, Sounds Magazine. We were like a number one importer over there. So David Munch was tuned into that. And when he came over, he went and saw the band. And at that time, you know, we were hardened from playing like six, seven nights a week across Canada, week after week for, you know, I don't know how many years, right? So uh, they loved the band, and uh, that's how we got signed. That's um, awesome. I. So did they come years? I was going to say it's nine long years of touring, right? That's a lot. Before yeah, one, one there was one year I think we did over three hundred dates. Wow! But but you guys were releasing independent music at that time uh, during. Yeah, which was unheard of. Yeah, one hundred percent. Unheard of. You put your own record, and uh, like there was no such thing as indie records back then. <laughs> uh, we spent twenty six thousand dollars on the first record we recorded at Springfield Sound out in. Uh, uh, just outside of London, Ontario, and that that studio was owned by Brian Ferryman, who went on to uh, uh, manage Michelle Wright, the country star. Sure, yeah, yeah. I think Budgie did an album there. Remember Budgie? Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Great, great band. Uh, they did an album out there, and um, we did the first two albums out there. Uh, the first one was with Bob Morton, who uh, okay. had uh, success with a Quebec band called Harmonium, and I okay. think it sold like over a hundred thousand albums just in the province of Quebec. And wow. then um, we worked with Lockton McFadden, who had had a lot of success with Harlequin. Right, right, right. Yeah. So is is the first Capitol record, is that No Rest for the Wicked? Yes. Because that's when I saw you guys. Yeah, because that was it sort of like really started to explode around that time. Heavy Metal Love. All that stuff was written in a four-week period. We had, we had uh, basically gone on tour at West, and we had... Uh, Geez, we've been out there for like eight weeks, writing, 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 and all the stuff we just throwing out, right? And then all of a sudden, we, we clicked, and it was like everything we were writing, we were keeping. So the first album was written pretty quick. And that was recorded where? I'm sorry? That was recorded phase one. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was at Tom Tremuth, and uh, yeah. Tony Bongiovi did the mix. Oh, he did? Wow. I, don't I, think I knew Tony that. Was, you know, I think that was uh, the made that. I'm going to turn my camera up here. There you go. For those that don't know, Tony Bongiovi is Tony Bongiovi is uh, John Bon Jovi's uncle, I believe. Yeah, and I think they sued each other. John sued. Yeah, there was something not good happened because uh, uh, I know that trusty Thanksgiving anyway. But yeah. uh, <laughs> well, it's it's, it's uh, the power plant down in uh, New York City. Yeah, and power station. Yeah, power station. Right. So yeah, I got the power station. Uh, thanks for correcting me there. But uh, that's right. 
they used to mix was Tony give the tapes to all the engineers. They go, go, go crazy, do anything. So they do these wild mixes and then he'd listen to them all. He'd take the best parts and um, he'd go and do like an hour mix and that was it. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, that's handy. And that's how he did a lot of that stuff, but he had a real, a good touch for our stuff. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah, that's a great album. It's a, it's it is so, a great album. That's my favorite uh, Helix song. I think it's solid. That's also got. Um, Does a fool ever learn? Is on that record. Yeah, that's Eddie Schwartz song. Eddie Schwartz. Yep, yep. How did uh, Don't Get Maggot Even by Lisa de Bellington Thorny. Thorny. Uh, so uh, is there like a forty-minute record like in there? Right. The, those records were shorter then. That seemed like had a lot of songs on it. Dude, if you look at like we were the most prolific guys in the world, right? Because I think that it, back then uh, writing was such a mystery, you know. I mean, there was so much pressure from everybody to write, like that. and then they try to gear, you know, gear us towards certain things. It's made it really hard because you know instead of writing, you were arguing with people. Yeah. You know, like, well, look, if you know if you know how to write so well, why the hell do you write a fucking song? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, I, I, that was my logic. Like, what, it was the flaw. Yeah, exactly. But that must have been an interesting time because, like, as you say, the new wave of of British heavy metal, Maiden, Judas Priest, uh, Saxon, all these groups. Yeah, so you guys kind of came in, you know, where that was sort of this this hot new thing that was happening, uh, being the Canadian version of of a lot of that kind of stuff. This is before Motley Crue and before all that kind of stuff started to take off. Motley Crue was actually playing out in Western Canada when we were there. We we played one place in... uh, Lloyd Minster, we followed them in there. But That's they got pulled up the board because of their, their wristbands or something back then. Yeah, I remember hearing those stories. There was all these yeah. kind of like stories of bomb threats and all kinds of things about Motley Crue and yeah, Western uh, Canada. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, they were out there at that same time as us. And uh, yeah. but it was really funny when we were signed to Capital, like literally we were making 190 bucks a week. And, uh, right. you know, we were all our wives and girlfriends are breaking up with us. None of us had our families stick together. Yeah, and, uh, we ended up getting signed to Capital, and we went from like here to here in like record-breaking time. That's and so was, great. Um, back then, anyway, when you were with a major label, it's just like everything just changed. Mm-hmm. Some of your right. with you know guys spending you're just spending like thirty thousand dollars in your album cover. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's and hard to it's hard to fathom that kind of thing when you're like the year before you're like thirty thousand dollars. I didn't make that all year last year. Well, I think <laughs> that's why we all became like semi alcoholics too, because you know we didn't have booze in the bar, and suddenly it was like booze every night. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And For free, we get into this like thought process where I can't go to bed. There's a beer left. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and we have to address all the young musicians that are tuning in. They're thinking $190 a week. Oh, my God. You know, this is like yeah, I know, unheard right. of now, too, right? Yeah. Well, I, I tell people, I go, you know how, how uh, um, financially rewarding the music business is. When I started, I sold my new car. I didn't have another one for 26 years. Right. Yeah. That's the music biz for you, isn't it? I know. I drove all these junkers for years. Yeah, but who needs a car? You're you're on the road. You're rocking. Kind of broken down by the side of the road. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so when you guys start start touring at that point, I mean, when you after the record comes out, does that mean you go from playing clubs into like opening for larger bands and that sort of thing? And 
we'll get this. We get signed to Capitol Records, so they immediately we got signed to ICM in the States. So they send us down to the States on the um, uh, uh, Blackfoot uh, Molly Hatchet tour. Oh, wow. And it starts off in Indiana. Well, after three dates, the thing falls apart. It's kept, no. That's where I met Ricky Medlock and uh, all those guys, right? Anyway, so ICM scrambles to put us on because our, our manager, Bill Sipes, says, look, just keep us down there. Keep us. We don't care who we're with, right? So he puts us on with Motorhead, another perfect day tour. Oh, no. <laughs> anything but. So we're on with Motorhead. And, like, in between playing with other bands. So we go from playing with Motorhead one night, and the next night we're in uh, uh, um, Hampton Beach with guess who? Quarter. Oh, wow. Quarter, quarter Flash. Yeah, yeah. Quarter <laughs> Flash. <laughs> two chicks in the band and they got like a dalmatian dog they're carrying in the tour bus with them plus a couple of friends so you get get and they're having like these long sound checks or like getting things like so minute right Right. and it's like tablecloths out and maitre d's with the apron over the arm and the whole bit (laughs) kicking over friggin People are shooting the gals. They go, "What the hell is this?" Right? <laughs> like, the table, and like they were just in shock. Well, we got fired immediately, of course. And then uh, our manager had to beg us back for the second night, and then we went back to Motorhead again. I think uh, we started back in Motorhead in Providence, Rhode Island, and sure. I, I woke up in the bus and I walked out, and, and it was like I walked into a war zone in a third world <laughs> country or something. It was like Nazis, and and then we played. Uh, uh, um, uh, trying to, the living room, that's what it was called in Providence, and it was like black walls, black floors, black, everything was black. Yeah. And uh, Lovey made me warm up in a friggin' broom closet, which I didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> which uh, had to do a warm up. Of course, of he course. He said, Lovey calls me, he goes, you know, he says, what's good for me? He says, have you ever tried this listening stuff, you know, spraying your mouth? It's really good for your singing voice. <laughs> he, said, he said, without this stuff, he said, I don't know where I'd be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Lemmy was a different kind of singer that way. Yeah, he was not. I, uh, love, I love Lemmy. I, I, I love, love him. He's the best. He was a great best. band. And, uh, but I love the songs. I thought he wrote great songs. Absolutely, yeah. yeah There's a reason why, the For being a songwriter, like he wrote uh, Home Sweet Home with uh, Ozzy. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. He wrote a lot of uh, he wrote a lot of lyrics for people. People don't know yeah. he's actually a, was a big lyricist. Yeah, he very was. talented. So, at what point? How long is it between albums? Then, like, how long are you guys like go out there and slug it out, and then go into Razor's Edge? I guess after that, is it? Yeah, Razor's Edge was eighty four, and then we went out. Uh, we played twenty thousand seat arenas all across the United States with White Snake and uh, uh, Quiet Riot. Actually, Quiet Riot was the headliner. And you know, there's another guy, Frankie, just passed away. Yeah, that's day. timely because Frankie just passed. Yeah, Frankie yeah. was an amazing dude. Yeah, he was a great. Yeah, friend. so like we were on that tour, and uh, you know, I saw those guys every day, and the, and that. Yeah, oddly enough, the the White Snake guys. My wife's English, and when I finally met my wife, she had an apartment in Shepherd's Bush. Well, her flatmate, the person she rented out the one room to, was Neil Murray. So, oh yeah, wow. I played with Neil, and then I, you know, ended up knowing Neil through my wife. So that's so cool! Wow, you know. So, and I guess David used to come over there, and actually, yeah. Galen went over to that apartment and uh, on the first tour because they were getting mobbed. So Linda worked at the Hard Rock, 
And Linda says, well, here's the keys of my apartment. You want to go there and party? So she got all sorts of uh, pictures of Van Halen, their first tour. With, oh, wow. I think one of them, uh, they got a sparkler in their mouth or something. Right? Okay. <laughs> so where was the Razor's Edge recorded? Razor's Edge was recorded again at Phase 1, but we phase took one. it down to uh, Atlanta, and we had uh, Rodney Mills uh, um, do the mix. And Rodney was uh, the guy that did a lot of the 38 Special stuff. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah. Which was an odd combination, but our manager was into stuff like that. Yeah, but 38 Special was a massive... Yeah, he liked uh, like commercial stuff, so he yeah. tended to go that way. And eventually, like, at one point it was very beneficial, but then it got to the point down the road where it became a real bone of contention between the two of us. Right. Yeah. that's a bit, That was a big record. We were really good friends. We talk all the time. Yeah, I bet. But it, it was, it was, you know, it wasn't easy splitting. He was, he was responsible for a large part of our success going in sight. Of course, that, and that was a huge record for you guys. If, if uh, I'm not mistaken, I, I think I read actually somewhere in your book. If anybody hasn't uh, already picked well, it up, that that a copy. I have that. Um, that was that was a huge release for, I guess, what would at the time be considered a Canadian band. I mean, that was, uh, you know, something that I guess probably spanned. I mean, how long did you guys tour that record for? Well, uh, we started off in this place with Clyde Ride and White Snake, and then uh, I think we went to Europe with Motorhead that year, if I'm not mistaken. And then we came back, and I think we headlined Canada ourselves. Right. And that's rock. Rocky was a massive song for you guys. It was massive, especially in Sweden. It's, it's still got to uh, be your, is it still sort of your signature track that people kind of sort of. Yeah, I and a curse at the same time. I look at it more yeah. because if it weren't for that song, you know, who knows? Yeah, um, yeah, that's their signature song. Uh, yeah. But Heavy Metal Love, believe it or not, got got uh, um, great song. A, a lot of airplay too because Heavy Metal Love. When we first did the video for that, that was done in Toronto at the Massey Ferguson plant by Rob Cordley and Champagne Productions. That video went to heavy rotation because. Much um, MTV it was the first year, and no, they didn't have any videos. Of course, yeah, they yeah. Were getting heavy, heavy rotation on MTV. I remember pulling into Washington D.C., and it was a damn lineup for the band around the block. Wow, and that's great. Kind of Washington, and this was when we started going across the states. This was happening. It was just, uh, it was quite. I don't know. It was happening so fast. It was hard to take it all in. Where was the video for Rock You Made? Rocky was done at the Toronto Brickyards. Uh, oh, that's in Toronto. I always assumed that was somewhere Toronto. in the desert. That was a hard video to do. It was a two-day shoot, but it was in the spring. And they had us dressed in burlap, and, and we were <laughs> yeah. our bare feet, except the, our feet were wrapped in burlap. Right. But we were in, like, shale. Oh, like no. Sharp, sharp rocks for hours and hours on end in the water. And then when Brent did that shot, that was on the second day. They went, okay, that's a wrap. And we go, hey, what about the guitar shop? We wanted a guitar shop with Brent going in the water and coming out of the water. Right, right, yeah, right. He went, now we don't have time to do that. So there was a big huddle and uh, <laughs> and uh, finally uh, quarterly said, okay, we got one try at this and that's it. So Brent got in the friggin' water and it was so cold <laughs> and it was late at night. And everybody was tired. I thought, how did his, I thought his nuts must be shrunk right up in his <laughs> And he got in there. Right, and uh, he did that shot, and that was the shot that that sold that video. Because you know, back then the kids all watched, watched, and uh, everybody kind of had that. Like, what was going to happen in the lead, right? Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Up a balcony. 
<laughs> away in a helicopter, you know. So that was our our thing for that video. So it's it's a it's a bit of a lost art. People don't really think about it. like the back in the day making music videos in like really awkward places and stuff like that it was always very unusual. Fun though too, right? It was part of it. It's like it was like dressing up on stage too, right? People dressed had to dress down nowadays. Mm-hmm. But um, we were taught, you know, you you dress off stage like you are on stage, right? Uh, you know, don't be a phony and uh, don't show up looking like you know you're ready to go to a business meeting and then five minutes later try to be Mr. Rock guy. Yeah, so, no, I know. Yeah, really awkward. We go to a place like Tim Hortons, right? Like boffed out hair, and, <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? And uh, get the stairs, but after a while, we kind of liked it because we got the chicks, man. Yeah, of course. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's the way it goes. Yeah, you know, you, uh, tell me if this is a true or not. You can always tell who the the friggin' rocker and the stripper was at the bus station. <laughs> <laughs> well, you said it was the bus station, you know, rocker, stripper. <laughs> Sometimes the same person, rocker <laughs> and stripper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, I didn't ever see that. Actually. <laughs> yeah, that might be a different one, yeah. <laughs> I didn't uh, know that Spider played on that record as well. What a great, great bass player, eh? The He's best. Yeah. best bass player, just loves Spider's playing. Yeah. Did he play all the bass on it, or just a, he played all the bass in that record? Yeah, really. Wow, that. that's Amazing. crazy. So you learn something every day. Between bass players, uh, Mike Uslock yes. left. That was another story entirely. Um, you know, here was the guy. He was a good writer, amazing bass player in the band. And we went out on this Western tour, and halfway through, he picked up a Gideon's Bible and flipped. He wanted to become a born again Christian, leave the band. He wanted us to change the album cover. All right, here we are. We're just about to get signed to Capitol Records. You're going, what the hell's going on? Here you go. Okay, another bass player. You know, you had a picture of the devil on that on that album, right? <laughs> yeah, I didn't know he was going to work at a bus station or something. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> but so he left the band, right? So we oh, get this boy. other bass player. Like it was like the first guy we get. This guy named Mark Rector, and uh, we went over to Europe and we did the whole kiss tour of this Mark Rector guy. We, and, I can't tell you most of it, but we get over there, and the first thing he wanted to do was go back home. Mrs. Oh, Gold. boy. And we oh. said, you ain't going back home. They used to lock him in his room. So he, every night he'd be warming up for the show. We could hear him playing the song. Uh, he was like to his girlfriend, Julie. He's like, oh, Julie. You'd <laughs> be here behind the door singing this friggin' song, eh? And um, finally wow. got home and... Um, we got a West with Streetheart, I think, for a couple of days, and not the last one. He just picked up. Never even said goodbye. I've never seen him since. You know what? Wow. Anyway, we're. But, uh, that we guy wasn't a guy. lifer. That's the thing. We got another guy whose name was Pete Guy. And uh, so he's on trend. He's not, you know, he's green bass player. But anyway, we, we uh, jump across on the Motorhead tour to Toronto, play Masonic Temple, and guess what? He can't get back in the next night to the States. Oh, wow. So we got to get Mike Uslak back. So <laughs> our first date back is at the Metro down in Chicago. You ever played there? I think no. it's still there, down from Wrigley Field. Big, once again, one of these big black buildings. Black, sure, yeah. more black ceiling. And we get, we get to this gig, and there's a mob, literally a mob, outside of like a, a thousand people. And Motorhead's late, as usual, for the sound check, and they're out in the street, and they're drinking, and the cops are showing up, trying to get them off the street. And uh, we have to get Mike back, who's a born-again Christian. Right. He's always into this. And it's kind of like <laughs> <he's been> <laughs> we, 
they, we had so little room and stage. We had like this much room and the front of the motor had stayed, right? Sure, yeah. There's a guy right up front with a real logging chain wrapped around his friggin' neck. <laughs> we, go on stage, we go on stage, Fritz wasn't even, Fritz was off stage, mic'd. And I kept looking back at Filthy Phil's drum kit and going, where's Fritz? Oh, yeah, it's not Fritz's kit. <laughs> over there. Yeah. We went out and, and there was a gauntlet of arms pounding the stage. Mads, we're still pretty young, right? right. We're walking across these arms, they're pounding the stage like this, and they're going, Motorhead, <laughs> Motorhead. <laughs> I, go, I turned around to Brent and I said, Play the damn song. The Brent the rock you, and we just went through the friggin' set, and it, it was scary. I bet, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. you guys, but you guys rock pretty hard. It wasn't like you guys were up there playing Air Supply or something like that. You guys were no. But I look back at, at Mike, the Burn Again Christian. He was like pasted to his amp. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he didn't have much room. People were trying to grab at him, and he, he must have wondered what the hell he came back to. Oh, I bet. Um, I bet that was his last gig. It, it, but you know, we we were like uh, like I was a farm kid basically. You know, right. and, uh, the other guys, you know. Uh, we really hadn't seen anything like motorhead. They were doing speed every day, staying up yeah. every day. You know, all this crystal mess and stuff. And I remember the first time I talked to Lemmy, I'm sitting in uh, Penny Arcade in Rochester, New York. When I get my food, and he just happened to be sitting at the bar beside me, right? And I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden he turns and he goes, You believe in God? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't believe in God. My father's a preacher. I asked him for money. Fucking, we give me the money. I don't believe in God. (laughs) He goes, uh, I used to roadie for Jimi Hendrix. He said he had a cracker box full of drugs. He said we did uh, uh, window pane. We were stoned for two days. And uh, he told me about being in Hawkwind. And uh, the funniest thing he ever saw was uh, he played in Hawkwind. There was a pond in front. And he said they come on stage and their guitar player come out dressed as a frog and he hopped across the stage <laughs> and into the freaking pond, eh? To start the show. Wow. But yeah, he, he was something else to play with, Lenny. Oh, I can't imagine, yeah. We have to get into, like, I know we could do your whole career, but I want to, before, in case we get kind of sidetracked, the Trailer Park Boys connection to Helix is such a brilliant thing because. I mean, most, the funniest thing is is how the Trailer Park Boys have become so much more than just a right, Canadian right. phenomenon, dude. I was in uh, Finland, and there was a poster of, like, the Trailer Park Boys had come and done, like, live shows and stuff like that. that. And I was like, damn, dude. Like, I, I always just thought of it as a Canadian phenomenon. But there's always that great reference of, um, well, you know, a, 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 in that show. Yeah, well, I mean, the fact that Bubbles is a massive Rush fan. We all know this story, that Bubbles is a massive Rush fan, and Ricky prefers Helix. <laughs> it's always the, the best thing in the whole wide world. He's like, I want to just, he just wants to talk about Helix. And I go, it's so funny because to me, it's like, you guys must have got so much love coming off of that, off of that uh, reference that people must probably seek, seek oh, out. About what? I you bet. I'm in swollen members. Wow. And that was a great tour. And they let me film everything. They'd walk around the dressing room and film. And I got tons of footage on my camera. And I told Rob Wells, who's Ricky, I yeah. sent him all the footage. But uh, like uh, last time I was in Halifax, uh, Rob took me down to the studio and uh, showed me around, gave me a private. There was nobody there, me and Rob. I just like, uh, I felt so special, you know? 
But how'd that all come about? Did, did they literally just reference Helix, or, or did you have a connection to these guys, or did, did the did the Rock U reference come up first, and then you kind of connected to the band? Well, we to, had a to the show. all the time. Archie's on Gamble, and Archie came to me and says, "Hey, you know the show Trailer Park Boys that mentioned uh, Helix?" I go, "Trailer Park Boys? What the hell's that?" This show's great. Anyway, I forget how the contact came about, but I contacted Mike Clottenberg, who's director of the show. And right. uh, I said, um, listen, Mike, I said, if I come out there and I pay to fly out to Halifax and that, can I come down and watch a film? I said, I've never seen him film a, a TV show from before. I'd really like to see that. He says, yeah. So I flew out there and they sent a limo out to the airport and they picked me up. And I went down and, and uh, I was starstruck with the guys. But the funny thing was they were kind of starstruck with me. <laughs> and, uh, I wasn't really ready for that. And... Um, we went out for supper together, and and, and Rob was wearing, uh, you know, in the, the first couple seasons, I was wearing that shirt with the rip. He was yeah. wearing that goddamn shirt. <laughs> and uh, there people coming up, like, left, right, and center. Oh, I and bet, the yeah. And they'd, they'd stop, and they were so gracious, and they were so friendly, and uh, and there was just a, a good vibe on the set. And then I think, um, and then when we did Countdown Liquor Day, the movie, uh, I went out there, and, and Mike Clattenberg had just quit uh, right before... Right. The, the the movie premiere and uh, it was what was really weird was that we got on the bus to go down to do walk the red carpet for the film and everybody was really quiet because i guess they didn't have any premonition this coming up or i don't know but we're right in there and all the cast is there and me and linda like none of them had their girlfriends or wives or anything and it was the last time the cast was ever together like really? Unworth and uh, um, um, who is it plays the rapper? Uh, uh, oh, uh, J J. Uh, well, J. John 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 Torrance. Uh, J- yeah, exactly. He used to have a, his own show back in the day. Yeah, all those people were there, right? And um, you know, I felt kind of special being in on that too. And I've been back since. I've done swearing at with the guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's That's amazing. Not well, there. And you, know, you sit down, they're all on their computers, they're working away, and uh, on their computers, answer whatever, and they'll talk to you. you know, I'm sitting there asking questions, how's it going, blah, blah, blah. And uh, about two minutes before we're going to start, Mike turns to me, he says, okay, he says, the show's half hour long. He says, uh, once we start, don't stop, just talk about anything. <laughs> <laughs> we start, and all of a sudden, there's like a... a uh, a guy with a uh, um, a camera and a, and the girl with the clipboard. And they go, you're on, and boom, and they just start talking, and it's so friggin' funny. Of and course. they're going. Uh, <laughs> first thing he goes, uh, Mike's. Uh, he goes. Uh, so I heard Gene Simmons and Arsenal, eh? <laughs> and then we go, I ain't excited touching that. Like, <laughs> he must have asked me three times. Like, you know, I get along with Gene pretty good, right? And, uh, Gene's birthday today, I believe. It is Gene Simmons' yeah. birthday wow. today. Right. 71 years old. Gene. Wow. No way. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Uh, we, were, we were the first band ever to play with uh, Kiss with the Makeup Off. That's oh, right. Wow. You the, the Lick It Up tour. That's right. Oh, wow. it was in Portugal, I'm pretty sure. Uh, because yeah. it was the first day of the Lick It Up tour. And yeah. And tour with Kiss right across Europe. That's the first we show. We started off in Portugal, from there went to Madrid and uh, uh, Barcelona. And then I think after that went to Germany and France, England, Scotland. 
Yeah. Well, nothing, not, nothing to take away from Helix there, but just as a Kiss fan, what was it like to be part of that, seeing the transition from the makeup and watching the crowd? What was what was the crowd's response from a, a first-hand point of view? It was pretty good. Yeah? I thought they did well on that tour. Um, i got to be honest with you, I wasn't really a big Kiss fan until that tour, and then I became a big Kiss mm -hmm. fan. But, um, you know, I got to see the guys every day, and I got, got to know them on a, on a personal level versus, you know, Rockstar fan level. Um, I think the most intimate moment I have with Gene Simmons was we were on the plane waiting for the, the bathroom, and I was reading uh, Last Wolf in Vienna, which is about the Holocaust and um, Auschwitz. And Gene Simmons pointed at the book and he goes, uh, My grandfather died in Auschwitz. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'll never forget. Yeah. yeah. His, his mother was, uh, was in the camp, as far as I know. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Hmm. It, it, yeah, it's so. funny watching those uh, those initial uh, non-makeup shows. They would often advertise them still in like, like the posters for the advertisements would be the band in makeup still. So oh, yeah, I tried to stop that. Another funny thing that happened, we were playing in Germany at a famous old beer hall where Hitler used to give speeches. In fact, Kiss had to turn the S's around when they played Germany. Yeah. yeah. But, um, who showed up at the gig but Brian May? So, of course, you know, everybody's got to meet Brian May. Sure. So yeah, yeah. This, uh, I forget the name of the place. It's a famous beer hall. But we're out in the front entranceway with Brian May. And um, as we're getting this picture taken, Gene Simmons walks by and he goes, Hi, guys. And Brian May goes, Is that one of the road crew? <laughs> <laughs> that was a magic moment. Ouch. That's great. That is hilarious. That's so funny. Has Gene heard that story? <laughs> he heard it now. Well, yeah. at the end of the tour, we finally did get, we kind of kept our distance from them, right? We didn't want to, you know, bother them. At the end of the tour, they said, well, why don't you hang out with us more? <laughs> we, went, we didn't think you wanted us to, right? We were, we were kind of pissed off at ourselves that we didn't hang out with them more. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we didn't want to, we didn't want to ruin a good thing. Yeah, of course. It really yeah. was like they had their choice of whoever wanted to back them up on those tours. So mm. that's great, though. So, so when you go into the next records, what's the record that follows after the? Uh, I, I get kind of confused. Long on way to heaven. Long way to heaven, which was a great. That, that you guys had a massive hit with. Um, uh, give me, give me good loving. No, no that's on. No, before no, that's the, the hit off of uh, um, uh, um, Long Way to Heaven was Deep Cuts and Knife. Steve got the nine. breaker status on radio in the, in the states and in uh, Sweden. That, that album went to number one. Yeah, that was a real transition album for us. And once again, you know, I think it was real pressure for us to go, you know, have this commercial track on the radio and that. And I, I kind of understand why record companies push for that because you know they they want the band to get exposed and usually get sure. exposed through through singles. But um, you know, personally, I thought we should just write and. Uh, and whatever we came up with was should have been the single. Like we wrote heavy metal love. We weren't thinking of a single in our mind. We we're just thinking of writing the song. Sure. Yeah. You know, and uh, I think naturally we, because we, we came out of the bars, we used to do a lot of cover songs in the bars. I think naturally we were like a heavy metal pop band. That's what we were about. Like sure, we yeah. Songs in the bars, you know, we did take these heads, uh, or these heads are going to roll by Jesus Priest and take these chains of the commercial stuff. You know, we didn't, we didn't do the obscure stuff because yeah. people in bars didn't want to hear that. 
but but music in general especially hard rock was changing while you guys were doing your thing too so it went from being like um you know the hard rock bands like mm-hmm. the judas priest and all that were starting to be replaced by the motley Cruz and the bon jovis and all this stuff started to mm-hmm. kind of present itself became more of a, a radio friendly friendly market that no one really had anticipated until it started to happen you know what I mean? yeah yeah but i so think you got- when it first comes out even punk like you know like looking at where billy idol ended up yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, and then once they get too commercial, and people abandon them for the next thing. Well, that's yeah. There, there's always I, another wave that comes along, girl, like a flame. Yeah, but, exactly. Know, I always thought the transition was great, though. I mean, that, that intro to "Wild in the Streets" is still like goes through my head every day. Every time I hear it, it's just you know, it, it sounds like it belongs it, it just as well as anything else. And yeah, I never felt like he looks really to me. It's like those records all sort of stand on par to me. Was there like around that? Around that era, say with Deep Cuts the Knife and all that, is this back to like you guys are like headlining by this point your own your you guys are probably headlining your own Canadian shows by we were we, were. we had we had actually had April Wine's old stage where he added the uh, the uh, ramps and the outer edges that looked like wings yeah yeah that's that's in the isn't that in the Wild in the Streets video yeah you know how there was different levels yeah we yeah had, yeah we had a guy jump on stage actually I think it was Saskatoon. And it was just like, you know, when, when uh, that Bugs Bunny cartoon where he's running away from Yosemite Sam uh, on the boat, you know, those different decks. You know, yeah. different it was like, God, this guy uh, was running from level to level, and uh, our road manager, Ken, was trying to catch him. He'd run up to this level, Ken ran up there, he'd run down to the next level. Finally, Kenny tackled him, took him right off the back of the friggin' <laughs> I don't know how far they fell, but the guy fell hard. Oh, no. Him. I'd like to hear about uh, Make Me Do Anything You Want and how you guys came about doing that because I used to play that in the family band and it was always well, kind of a thing to it. us. And I love Alex Macon's voice. And uh, who else playing that? Gordy Leggett. Uh, remember they were in, um, uh, what was the band they formed uh, later on? Come to me. They had another hit. But uh, I always liked Alex Macon's voice. And Foot and Cold Water was like the uh, Canon's version of Led Zeppelin, really. Mm-hmm. And, um, so when it came to it, we were short songs, because once again, we weren't the most prolific of uh, writers. And um, I said, well, why don't we do a version of that? And that's how it ended up in there. Oh, nice. Well, I love that. It's amazing, though, because it was like every year you had a record. And you were with this kind of a touring schedule, where, where did you guys even have time to write? Well, we were expecting to write on the road. Yeah. You know I mean, like I'd already be hoarse from singing like six, seven nights a week. And I go, you expect me to sing in the afternoon, too? And then we get into the studio, and we'd be doing stuff like She's Too Tough that we got from Joe Elliott, right? I used to call a song She's Too Damn High. I nearly put a freaking wrench in my nuts to sing that high. And, and they, go, they always go, don't worry about it. We'll work it out when you sing, when you sing live. We'll, we'll figure it out. Right, right, right. We never did, of course. They never figured out, yeah, no. And I'd go out there and scream my throat out. But, um, yeah. It's so that's how, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Shane. It seems like such a tall order to to expect to be writing on the road. I mean, you always say that, hey, well, let's write some songs, and you get out on tour, and you're tired every day. It just doesn't seem like you're especially gonna, when you, especially when you're right. young and and you're partying and staying up late and having fun. You know, it's different when you're older and you're a more, bit more sort of. Uh, I don't well, know. You have a plan. It's different when you're moving though, too. Like yeah. remember when we wrote No Rock for the Record, we wrote that band or we wrote that album rather in bars. So yeah. like when you played the bars, you stayed there. You had rooms. Yeah. So like, after the show, you go up. Yeah, you go up and drink and party and carry on, right? But 
you know, it was easy to take out a guitar and write a song. Yeah. But when, you, when you're traveling, you know, you're in a vehicle, it's moving down the highway, you can't really hear it, you're not really relaxed with the damn instrument. Yeah. Uh, it's a whole, total different feeling. So, you know, we didn't get much done. But, but a lot of records. Because you have writing in the bars. I got lots of ideas for just talking to people through speech. Totally. Mm. And back then, but back then it was a different, like these days, you put records out like once every three years. When you look back in the 70s and 80s, especially the 70s, bands were cranking out sometimes two albums a year. You know, it was like mind-blowing. Well, you know, people really have a, a short attention span when it comes to music. You know, you, you don't put out anything for a year and people move on. That's the thing, yeah. It's almost, it's almost back to that now, isn't it? It's almost back to that now where we should be cranking out. That's why I think bands covering songs became such a such a popular thing like van halen does a ton of cover songs when you look at those records mm -hmm. um but they're cranking out two songs a, or two albums a year or you know often a year apart or whatever but still you have to kind of fill the well a lot of people you you uh, pick up on songs that uh, were hits in one territory but not worldwide for instance uh i love rock and roll by joan jett that was by the arrows wasn't it yeah, something like that. Yeah, I forget who wrote that. wrote that song. It was a big hit in England, but never made it to the uh, to North America. Same with a lot of that Slade stuff. Slade was bigger than the Beatles. Yeah, uh, you must have been a Slade fan. I was a huge Slade fan. I yeah. asked to uh, meet Naughty Holder and stay at his hotel. Oh uh, wow! When we were over there for the, um, I think it was Wild Street Fair. There you go. Hotel, and he used to come down in the afternoon. You have a drink with us, and uh, he and was then, out like I was. Just, Another one of those guys that you're in awe of, you know. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, all sorts of hits in England. And then, yeah. come on, feel the noise gets covered by Quiet Riot, and it's a massive hit for them. Yeah, so it's well, it my solo album, I did Goodbye to Jane. Right, right, right. That's right. Yeah, that's awesome. So, mm -hmm. how does it go after that when you go into like Wild in the Streets? Is there any sort of massive transitions happening yet? I mean, I know we're covering most of like the the major label releases that you guys did. No, there wasn't really a major transformation, anything because it was me and Paul doing most of the writing, right? Some of the stuff was written by Brett. Uh, the major transformation came, obviously, when Paul died. Yeah. He in a car accident. and uh, That's horrible. You know, now, was that was that actually traveling between gigs that that happened, or was that in between? We had, on the Coca-Cola, wasn't it? Pardon, excuse me? On the Coca-Cola Highway? Yeah, it was outside of uh, Merritt, I believe. Yeah, that's uh. right. That's right. That's uh, and what happened was the driver fell asleep and they went off on the shoulder and then they rolled the van, right? But um, some of us flew home and and, uh, and they drove, unfortunately. But um, when Paul died, you know, music was changing. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 a lot of things were happening and it was a bad time for the band. Nobody wanted to write with me. Uh, nobody wanted to even be in the band with me, right? And... Um, so, uh, you know, I had to go out and I had to write with all sorts of people, whoever I could find. So. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's almost the tale of every band or every artist where eventually, I mean, it's why they make things like behind the music, because there's always that sort of like act and the and chapter in the book that becomes like challenging and tough. Well, well back to another taste, once again, like I said, we weren't the most prolific guys. And uh, on that one, Paul really had writer's block. So um, my manager, uh, William Sype, he uh, sent me down to New York City to write with Mark Ribbler uh, because Mark Ribbler and I had written Good to the Last Drop off of uh, uh, the Back from the Taste Zone and became a huge radio hit in Canada. Cool. So um, I think I'm just going to check, make sure this isn't on. 
I hear music or something coming from somewhere. Uh, anyway, sorry to break out of there. But um, where was I? Uh, so they sent me down to write with Mark Ribbler, and the stuff we were coming out with is very, very commercial stuff. Like, sound like Don Henley. And, um, but it was where I was at musically. It was, it wasn't sure. like, it was an honest, how can I say, an honest songwriting thing on my part. I wasn't chasing some type of music or something. It was just, you know, I was going through some heavy things in my life too, a divorce, or my life with a divorce. And I was basically homeless with everything I owned in a goddamn suitcase wandering around. Right. Um, and, um, so I went through that and gradually, you know, it took me years and years, but I finally got a band back together that was a good band. And uh, I found a writing partner in Sean Kelly and then uh, uh, Gordy Pryor and Steve Georgiopoulos and writing with a few people now. Yeah, Sean's a great, Sean's an amazing talent. So how long was the Helix name retired for or like on pause? It wasn't. We never it was never? It never really but stopped? What happened was... You know, we obviously, when we left Capitol, we went from making albums for, you know, half a million dollars while on the streets, I think, with the videos, to sure, yeah. uh, making Back for Another Taste for $35,000. And when we did that, it was from money we had saved up, me and Paul, for mutual funds. That was all our savings from all those years of work. Wow. And we were given a choice of disbanding or spending that money on another album. We chose to do another album. There you go. And, um, and you know, then Paul was killed. And so I carried on, and um, um, my manager, I fired my manager, um, and then I was, I was putting out albums. I was recording for literally $10,000, $15,000, and everybody was saying, pack it in, and you're, you're dragging the band's name through the mud, and I went, well, you know, this is what I do, write songs, and exactly, yeah. what you want me to do. So uh, then we hit pay dirt in about 1996 at Power Rock and Roll. I got signed to Sanctuary. And damn if they didn't go back and buy all those friggin' albums off me for five thousand US each, enough that I went and bought a house down the street. Well and, done. And that kind of saved my ass. Totally. Uh, but before the albums ever came even came out, Sanctuary went belly up. So they never ever right. released them. Right. Um, right. So <laughs> so I got all that money and uh, like I said, I, I put money down a house down the street and um, was that the one featured in Cribs? No, that's one. Uh, that house I just sold last year. Oh, so wow. You know, I have down the street, and I, I tell my students because I teach voice, I teach focus. Um, but I teach them, you know, if you can diversify somehow, for me, it was uh, real estate, just, uh, you know, having a place nearby where I could work on when I wasn't being a musician guy. Sure. And I found uh, working, doing construction shit in the house was a good outlet because a lot of times it's just mindless stuff, you know, and uh, sure, yeah. relief from my high-stress music job. Right. Now, did you take, what kind of training did you take that you're passing on to these these uh, these students of yours? I, I'm actually very curious about this. Because I've never really taken a whole lot of, like, vocal training, so I'm always kind of, like, picking the teacher's well, brains. Great voice. And, uh, oh, thank you. I appreciate yeah, that. I mean, I don't think you need training. But um, when I went, I went because I lost my voice in 1976. I went to a throat specialist, and they told me I'd never sing again. Pack, wow. and I was devastated. All I wanted to do from the time I was five years old was sing. Sure. And so uh, my manager took me aside, and he said, look, I'm going to send you to a uh, uh, voice teacher up in Hamilton by the name of Edward Johnson. So he sent me up to this guy, and he's 
And Edward Johnson used to teach everybody in Southern Ontario from Copper Penny to Major Hoople's Boarding House. We've got Daniel Lanois, uh, uh, Moore of Triumph, uh, Beverly D'Angelo, uh, um, like I said, Ray Green and his wife. Uh, so I went Edward Bear, who was another one he taught. And he taught the old uh, Italian Methodist singing called Bel Canto. And I went there and remember, I, I was never supposed to ever sing again. Right. And he sighed and he said, Lucky, just do what I tell you to do. And your nodes will go away. And so um, I listened to him. And in one, one year, without taking any time off, my nodes went away. Wow. And, uh, then over time, it took me a long time to get my confidence back. Mm -hmm. And um, it saved me. And that's and learning bel canto has enabled me to sing all these years. I'm not the greatest singer in the world, but I can sing every night and not lose my voice, which, mm -hmm. as you all know, means money because everybody doesn't get paid if the singer doesn't work that's the thing yeah right yeah and that happens all the time a lot of vocalists almost every vocalist gets in some kind of trouble like that because well you know vocal problems are all caused by one thing vocal tension mm -hmm. the vocal cords are really meant to vibrate around a middle c where you talk when you sing and you're way up high around a high c or that your vocal cords are vibrating a thousand times a second and instead of tapping together uh, uh, gently is which how your vocal cords are supposed to work when you see singers and especially got all sorts of tension down here around the thyroid cartilage all that tension is transferred to your vocal cords and instead of gently tapping together like this they start smacking the hell out of each other and they swell up around the inner edges and you lose the top part of your range first because you're, uh, the higher the note you're singing, the faster your vocal cords have to vibrate to create that pitch, just like a guitar string. So sure. uh, uh, the uh, swelling you get in your vocal cords from transferring that tension, right, it acts like a weight, and it slows down the frequency of vibration of your vocal cords. So say you're trying to sing a high C, which requires you to vibrate your vocal cords a thousand times a second, but now they're swollen, they can only vibrate 700 times a second, Houston, we have a problem. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Being human, what do we do? We yeah, I know. more tension to try to ram it up to the note, and eventually uh, singers get nodes, which are really only a callus. Hmm. Sure. And, yeah. and, when they, and when they get them operated on, that's a bad, bad thing, because it takes away the uh, elasticity of your vocal cords. Right. Like Adele, yeah. she had that, that operation, right? And Who did? Oh, Adele, yeah, yeah. It's yours anymore. And yeah. Julie Andrews, they, or, uh, Julie Andrews never sang again. Uh, Joan River, they killed her. Really? Wow. Well, that's what she was, I think she was getting an operation in millage in her vocal cords, and they gave her too much anesthetic. All right. Oh, right. Yeah, a yeah, lot of I mean, those, those raspy singers in the 80s, too. I remember uh, Tom Kiefer from Cinderella had that problem, and I mean, I don't did think... He have, did he have his throat scrape? Yeah, and I don't think he's ever sounded the same, but I mean... Well, so, I, don't guys too, I won't mention names because you probably know who they are, but they used to get steroid injections into their vocal box. Sure. You know, that that actually, uh, I talked to uh, some opera people, and they say that's actually really not uncommon in the no. opera world because, you know, it's like the show has to go on, so it's like, yoink, and yep. <laughs> oh, you, go yeah, you know what that means, eh? There's bills to be paid. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 that means. Yeah, exactly. The light's got to yeah. stay on somehow, yeah. So what exactly but, uh, is bel canto then? Yeah, what's bel canto? Bel canto means beautiful voice in Italian, but the, the thing that sets bel canto aside from any other vocal technique that I've ever heard of is uh, the uh, there's, there's four steps to it. Lift the throat, 
uh, forward uh, uh, residence uh, and inhalation and hold of the breath. I've never come across another uh, vocal technique to use inhalation. Uh, inhalation is the secret to Belcanto. It's the uh, ability to take breath into your head as you're singing. And why that's important is you draw breath into your mouth and it creates a vacuum at the back of your throat, which is called Bernoulli's Principle in Science. And it draws equal amounts of breath up across your vocal cords. So instead of pushing breath across your vocal cords and high notes especially, which requires muscular tension, you have to use your muscles to push, right? You're, you're creating a vacuum at the back of your throat and you're, you're drawing breath up, which requires no muscular tension. Amazing. Wow. wow. See, it's, it's so scientific. Is yeah. this something that you, you teach online, or is this just a one-on-one? Is this something that, if anybody's listening, is this something they can I'm going to put up the website, but th this technique was actually started by Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci. Is that right? Leonardo da Vinci was a very forward-thinking human being, as you well know, and um, he was like light years ahead of any other human being, and he knew how the uh, breathing of the apparatus of the body worked. I wonder if he knew how to put the stem... <laughs> breathing apparatus of the body worked and he passed it along to vocal teachers at the time right? sure. and that's where it's where it began Is there anything he can't do yeah anything he can't do yeah. but uh you know it's a it's a much malign term you hear people ban you know i say they teach bel canto they don't teach bel canto and there's a lot of misconceptions about the voice out there you know, how to use your diaphragm. So many people just push out with their stomach, which is incorrect. And you can and you can prove it when you know what, what you're doing. That's amazing that you, I mean, that you've, you've clearly studied this. And I think nobody's better qualified than somebody who's been standing on stage in smoky bars and in yeah. every possible terrible situation. And you well, still got to get up the next day and do it all over again. Well, I basically studied for 35 years from Ed. And Ed Johnson's important in the, in the lineage of bel canto voice teachers because bel canto was was passed down through the ages strictly by word of mouth very little was written down about bel canto in fact the the art of the inhalation which they're taking breath into their head the old guys used to stick a candle up in front of their mouth and if the candle didn't go outwards they knew they had mastered the the inhalation they didn't tell them why they were doing it they didn't tell them how to do it and it sure as hell didn't tell them how to teach it right mm -hmm. uh Ed Johnson was the first uh, teacher that actually developed, went to, went to uh, first off, he went to doctors and scientists and figured out what the hell was going on. And then he figured out a palatable way of, of, of teaching it because how the hell do you teach somebody to take breath in their mouth as they're singing? Yeah, it's that's really impossible. It sounds like some Kenny G shit. Yeah. <laughs> there is a way to do it. Like, like circular a, breathing, right? Like a sax, like a yeah, wind instrument. I don't know yeah. What yeah. Breathing, right? Circular breathing is a little bit different because with a woodwind instrument, you'd have to be taking breath in through your your nose. Okay. Right, and I just right. don't know if that's possible. See, in, in in inhalation, what's happening when you do the spell canto is first off, you flatten your diaphragm, which pulls your your lungs downwards and forces air to the bottom of your lungs. The reason you use your diaphragm to sing is because normally you only breathe out of the top of your lungs, which is called clavicular chest breathing and it's only one-eighth of your top lungs that you use when you sing like that mm -hmm. and it's useless when you learn how to sing you need that full lung capacity so when you use your your diaphragm it, it completely fills your lungs and then once you do that then you learn how to keep your diaphragm locked flat 
And then you, with the inhalation, you drop as much breath as you want out of the uh, lungs. In other words, if you want more breath, you, you just will more breath in your mouth. Because that act, the one has to equal the other. Whatever you suck in is equal to what's drawn from the, the lungs. Kind of like when you put a bar of soap in a, a beaker of water, the amount of water displaced uh, is, is the amount of soap in the water, right? Mm-hmm. Kids, right. there's going to be a test on this, so I hope everybody's listening and taking notes. It's not so it does other things when you inhale, too. It, it also adds the overtones back onto the voice. Mm-hmm. Now, how do you do all this while you're doing all those crazy Brian Vollmer somersaults and jumping I around? I don't do those anymore. I <laughs> <laughs> my back big time. Oh, really? Seriously, yeah. Really? We, yeah, we, talk, we talked back. to Russ Dwarf last week, and he said the same thing. He's got to yeah. have to tone it down. No, I went to a doctor. I started to get major backgrounds a couple of years ago, and I went and um, from my C five to my C eight, it was just like totaled, and uh, I had a bleeding spine at that point. Which was, oh wow, yeah, that doesn't sound good. And um, I was in a lot of pain, and um, I was down Florida, luckily. So I'd spend my days in the pool, just hanging on one of those noodles. There you go. Back out, and then I go for a five mile walk, and good just. For you. Walk. And finally, my back came back to normal. There you wow. go. That's you awesome. Just, and there's no end in sight. I, I imagine you'll, be, you'll bury us all, Brian Bulmer. <laughs> <laughs> the worst is traveling in planes, though, when you're in, in planes for a long time. I know. That's rough. It's tough. Yeah, I know. So speaking of which, how much work have you watched vanish this year now because of this whole thing? Because I assume you guys have a pretty full dance car. Do you? Well, we had two acoustic shows that were sold out that we lost in April. We were just starting to book for the summer, but we lost two uh, really good dates out in Western Canada, as you know, one in Saskatoon and one in Winnipeg. Right. And, um, and uh, then we lost this one. It just fell apart. And uh, we had another festival out in uh, New Brunswick. So, there right. And funny enough, last year was our best year ever. We, we played uh, Rock Barcelona. We played that. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. No, I. Now we played uh, uh, the Skogs Road Jet Festival in uh, Sweden. That was with the Darkness and uh, Airborne, uh, Glenn Hughes. Great. Wow. Amazing, Glenn Hughes. Amazing. Dude. There's a guy that... There's star. a guy in his 70s. He's singing Highway Star. I know. He's singing... He's, he's kind of the... Uh, in a lot of ways, I think he's probably stronger now than he's ever been in a, in a weird way. Yeah, and, um, you know, we're becoming friends with the darkness because we played with those guys a couple times. Nice guys. They're the best. Um, and, you know, Bernie Aubin, our agent in Canada, he keeps us busy right across the country. Bernie's done a great job for us. Um, uh, you know, he knows Gothy Rock being the drummer for the head pins. And, uh, sure, yeah. Uh, um, you know, Bernie and I see eye to eye about a lot of things about building bands. And he's got, you know, he'll put uh, bands in his own roster together, and he's known as Mr. Classic Rock. And, that's because he's got most classic rocks, except for maybe April Line and Trooper in, in Canada. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the cool thing, is it? And um, you know, I hope uh, he doesn't go away. I tell him that all the time. Don't retire. No, don't. No, <laughs> no. That's awesome. Well, I'm excited to see where you know what 2021 has as far as Helix goes. Any new music on the? Any new music in the? <laughs> yeah, we're writing songs. We got Eat Sleep Rock. We just put out a new video. Uh, cool. Uh, last week, do you see it? No, I haven't seen it. I'm going to look uh, for it right now. Uh, I wrote that song "Eat Sleep Rock" with Sean Kelly a couple of years ago, and uh, so it became a title track. And uh, we're working on a new studio album. I'm working with my band uh, right now, and um, 
hopefully we'll have that on next year. Exciting. Awesome. That's very exciting. Well, thanks so much for coming and hanging out with us today, Brian. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm honored that you'd uh, have me on the show. Really, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, and with your permission, we'll put that link up for people on the uh, the Two Rocks page so they can go check out that video. Um, anybody else? If you haven't, like I said already, picked up this book, um, definitely worth hour. a read. Definitely worth hour. a read. And uh, you know, <laughs> and if you're lucky enough, you can even have uh, go to one of the shows. Nice. Look at that. Um, but yeah, thanks for coming out, and uh, it's been uh, it's been amazing. So thank you. For That's amazing. Um, next Brian. week, next week we have Victor Langan from the greatest Prairie heavy metal band of all time. Kick ass! Kick ass! That's right. That's about his limo service. That's right. That's right. Chris Jericho. He keeps saying he's going to take me for a limo ride when I come to Vancouver, and when I come there, the guy's never nowhere to be found. How do you like that? <laughs> That's a Victor. Chris and, and Brian, right? Brian Gilstrom too. Of course, yeah. Chris Jericho, the 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 very famous Canadian wrestler. Guys, is massive. Yeah, yeah he loves all you guys, and he loves yeah, kickbacks. Oh, yeah. you know, it's funny you go up with all these bands like Lee Aaron and the Headpins and that, and it's just like a big family reunion. I guess it is. I with these guys over the years, and I have my own brothers and sisters. I know it's kind of an awesome feeling. I think. Well, you guys did a triple bill last year. I think I, I was at that show in, in Winnipeg. It was the Dwarfs, Kickaxe, and, and yeah, Helix. Tons, yeah. you know. tons of films. Right. Dwarfs, Helix, and, 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 and uh, Kickaxe? Kick That'd yeah. be a huge bill. Wow. That yeah. a bill. That's funny because that's the, that's the exact guest we've had all in a row. That's right. Yeah. Russ Dwarf, yeah. Brian Palmer, Victor Lang. Yeah. Well, you know, Russ and I have the same birthday. Do you really? Oh, wow. We do, June 30th. Oh, June. That's so hey. weird. I'm June 26. We're cancers, man. <laughs> yeah, cancer. oh, you're so cool. There and, you go. Uh, Russ was actually the first person to stay at Planet Helix in my guest room. And we had a real little bathroom down there, right? And I, when he came, I was bullshitting with the day. So we made this bathroom just for you, Russ. It's <laughs> a. <laughs> well, now my phone's ringing. So that well, that's fantastic. Right. We'll let you go. So okay. just, just to cap, okay. there links in there. Um, somebody was asking about the somebody was just asking about the vocal lessons, and I think I saw on your website that's brianvolmer.com. That's twenty twenty one release. Is that the idea? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if anybody wants to check out more info, somebody was just asking online about that. And uh, yeah, thanks again for joining us. And again, everybody, uh, thanks for tuning in. And we'll see everybody same yeah, time, same two places. It's called Helix the Band. Helix, Helix the, band. the Band. There you Helix go. Band. That's our page. Fantastic. Awesome. Have a great right. day, guys. Thank you. Bye, Thank everybody. You. Take Bye. care. Thanks, Brian. You're the Bye. best. Bye.